Good morning. How's everyone doing? I've been assured that uh, by Nate that they've warned the kids that the men are taking over next week, so they'll be prepared. Just kidding. Uh, I do want to just add my encouragement to you men. What a great way to serve our, the ladies of our church by allowing them to be able to take off and have their women's retreat. So I would encourage you, if you haven't, to consider that. But uh, for those that I have not met, my name is David Pritchard, and I have the privilege of serving as pastor of Family Ministries here at Lake City, and I also get to bat lead off on a four-week sermon series on family. And the title of this series is Family, What Would Jesus Say? And we're certainly going to jump into some of the things that we believe Jesus has to say to the family uh, today. But first, I think the title gives us two questions that I want to address before we even jump into what exactly is Jesus saying. The first question is, what do we even mean when we say family? And then the second question is, why should we care what Jesus says about the family? And I'm going to address the first, second question first and the first question second. So let's start with that question, why Jesus? I mean, after all, this is a guy who is single. He's never... Uh, been married, never had kids, never been a grandparent. He's never had the joy of staying awake all night with a colicky baby. He's never had the privilege of having a teenager say, talk to the hand. He's never had his heart ripped out because of a spouse and a relationship that's gone south. So why should we listen to Jesus when it comes to this topic of family? And certainly that answer is part of what was, was, is all about what was talked about last week when Pastor Jim brought a message about the cross and resurrection Easter Sunday. And if you didn't hear that message, I would encourage you to go and download it and listen to it. It's well worth your time. But the answer lies in the cross and Easter and the resurrection. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us this, beginning in verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And then 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul tells us at least three things that are true if the resurrection didn't happen. If Easter is not a reality, then there's at least three things that are true. One is our preaching is in vain. In other words, I'm wasting my breath standing before you preaching this sermon. He says our faith is futile. Unless, of course, you're a Star Trek fan, then it's futile. Because the thing that we have hung our hat on is basically based on a lie. And then he says that of all people, we are the people most to be pitied because this is what we have given our life to. So we of all people are to be pitied if indeed this cross, this resurrection is not true. So be clear, if Christ did not rise from the dead, go home. Go home and just turn on the TV and relax and enjoy yourself. I mean, historians, even historians that don't believe in God will tell you that there was this historical figure named Jesus that walked the earth some 2,000 years ago. And he died on a cross at the hands of some pretty efficient Roman executioners. And what's significant is this, that Jesus went to the cross, he died because he was claiming to be God. And the reason that's 
such a big issue is that either that's true or it's not true. And the problem is if, if it's not true, then Jesus is the last person we should be taking advice from, certainly advice about the family. But if it is true, then it changes everything. I think of my own, uh, my own faith journey and growing up. I grew up in the home. My dad was in the army. This is a picture of him. He was in the army for 28 years. This was him when he was at Fort Lewis, I mean, excuse me, in Vietnam. Uh, but after he retired, he had a real heart for the soldiers. And so he started the first Psalm 1 congregational church uh, for Fort Lewis, and the church is still going today because he had a heart for soldiers, and he wanted our soldiers to be able to hear God's word in their native language. So I grew up in that home, and I would tell you that I believed in God. I think most people, if, they, if you would have asked you, if you would have, if you would ask them, they would say, I was a pretty good kid. I remember a couple of significant things that happened during my growing up years. One was my sister Becca. Some of you know Becca. Uh, she was off in college, and she came home uh, for, you know, one of her breaks. And this was in the era of uh, the Jesus freak and the one way, that whole movement. If you've got gray hair, you might remember those days. But, I mean, she was, like, all excited about this relationship with Jesus, and she was talking like, like crazy talk. But it was compelling, and, I mean, there was some, it was impactful. I remember it, it made an, uh, an impact on me. I didn't do anything with it, but I remember that. It was significant. And then when I was in high school, I was in the basement of a home at a Campus Life meeting, and my Campus Life leader, Dave Coleman, said, if you want to begin a relationship with Jesus, then I invite you to stick around after we dismiss, and I'll, I'll show you how to do that. And I, that night in that basement, I began a relationship with Jesus. Asked him for, to forgive me from, of my sins. I asked him to come into my life, and I began a relationship that's gone on to till today. And I would love to tell you that it was just like this smooth, easy journey of faith, but it wasn't. I mean, right off the bat, I found myself struggling with things. I was a science guy. In fact, in, in college, I ended up a pre-med major. So I was heavy into science. I loved science. And the problem is, in science, uh, they teach you the fact of evolution. Not the theory. The fact that this is how we came to be. And unfortunately, it runs headlong into our Bible and the the uh, the explanation of creation and how a loving God created us. And so I wrestled with that, and I, I did a lot of reading, and I did a lot of asking questions, and I did a lot of soul-searching. And, you know, the truth is that as I, as I looked at the science behind evolution, man, so much of it makes sense, and it, and it explains a lot of who we are and how we got to where we are. The problem is when it's, when it's trying to take us from nothing to where we are today, there's a, there are huge holes and the chasm between how far science could take me and getting to the end. I mean, honestly, it took more faith to believe in jumping that chasm than it did to just believe that a loving God created me. And so I got through that first real hurdle in my faith journey. And again, I'd love to tell you that, you know, it was smooth sailing from there, but it wasn't. I got married.
And in, uh, as we began our life together, I was in the pizza business. I ran at some pizza stores for a franchisee in eastern Washington. And I continued to struggle with some things. And some of it was my personality, I'll be honest. I mean, you know, I remember, you know, this, this is how some of our conversations go. We'd be driving down the street, and there'd be a gigantic moon, full moon out. And Kelly would go, man, isn't that moon awesome? I said, yeah. Isn't it interesting how sometimes during the year the moon is closer than other times? And she'd be like, no, I just think it's really beautiful. And I'm like, really? I mean, aren't isn't it interesting how sometimes you know, the, the earth blocks some of the sun and so we get different shaped moons? And she goes, no, I never really thought about that. I'm like, really? So some of it was certainly my personality. You know, but if I'm honest, there was a part of me that, you know, I just, I didn't want to believe all of this because there were things in my life that I didn't want to give up and I knew that if this was true, I was going to have to give those things up. But there was another part of me that very much wanted to know the truth, but it was part of my personality. I mean, here's, here's another, another illustration that <clears throat> tells you a little bit about, about me. You know, you take a, a, a chair like this. I mean, for Kelly, this is simple. It's a chair, so I'll sit down in it, right? But for me, it's like, wait, 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 wait. So how does that open and does it, it's going to stop? Like, so I can sit in it, it'll be okay? How does that work exactly? Right, that's just how my mind worked. And I, I mean, maybe none of you ever wrestle with things like that, but I found myself with this faith journey of mine wrestling with a lot of things. Like, I mean, Jesus was born of a virgin? I mean, how's that work? The inerrant word of God, I didn't even know what inerrant meant. And then he lives this perfect life and dies on a cross, and somehow that fixes me and then the resurrection I don't know about you but I've never seen anyone rise from the dead so I had real issues I mean I you know again there was part of this that was I didn't really want to believe this because I was wrestling with some things in my own life but there was a part of it that was very very real and I, w I wanted to know the truth but man alive it was hard to make to connect the dots on some of this partly because of how my mind worked and maybe none of you have ever wrestled with those kinds of things in your faith journey, but I did. And then something that changed my life is I bought this 12 cassette tape series. And yes, I said cassette tape. If you don't know what that is, ask your parents. But it was on apologetics, and it was by a guy named Josh McDowell. He wrote the book More Than a Carpenter. I tried to find the actual thing, because I kept it for years because it was such a it was, I mean, it changed my life, but it was, it was, this isn't it, but it was similar to like one of these things, you know, where you opened it up and it had all the cassette tapes and they had a workbook. I mean, it had hours of information in there and I, and I, I dove into that and I wrestled through that and there was so much information in there. Josh is very much like Lee Strobel. He set out to disprove the Bible and in doing so became a, a, a rabid follower of Jesus. But in that, he talked about a lot of things. But there were three things that really, really impacted this mind of mine and the way I, I think. One was Paul's conversion. And we can't talk you know, a lot about that. But suffice to say, when you think about how Saul of Tarsus, who is hunting down and killing and arresting the, the Christians, becomes 
Paul that writes literally half of the New Testament. If you take Jesus out of that, there's no way to explain that conversion. There's no way to explain that transformation from Saul to Paul without a Jesus. And then the other two things were, and they're connected, was the reliability of the Bible and the resurrection. And the reliability of the Bible, I mean, again, it was hours of stuff, but I'll, I'll, I'll summarize the part that, that really impacted me. And that's this, that what we are reading today, you can be very, 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 very confident that it's what was written originally by the original people that wrote it because of the historical proof that we have that what we are reading is what was actually written. Now, some would say, well, so what? That just means they wrote a lie whenever they wrote it, and now we're reading the accurate uh, copy of the lie that they originally wrote. Here's why that's significant, because the people that were recording the events in and around the, the, the cross, were, these were recorded within years of the actual event, so the people they're talking about were alive. The people that, were, that are writing this were, were there. They saw it with their own eyes. And so if it's a lie, guess who knows it's a lie? They do. And so how do you explain these disciples that go from a bunch of cowards hiding in an upper room to literally the next day becoming world changers? Without the cross and the resurrection, you can't explain that. How do you explain a bunch of men that were willing to die brutal deaths? History records all but John dying brutal deaths for a lie. Now, some would say, well, people die for a lie all the time, but the difference is those people that die for a lie, typically they die for a lie that they thought was the truth. These guys would have been dying for a lie that they knew very well was the truth, wasn't the, was a lie, because they were there. They were eyewitnesses to all that was going on. And so for me, when, when I looked at that and I realized the, the truth and the reality of the resurrection, I've never looked back. So when I ask the question, why Jesus? That's why Jesus. That's why we need to listen. Not because he's some good teacher, although he is. Not because he's, you know, a good man, although he is. But because he's God Almighty. The Bible says, in the beginning was the word, Jesus. He's been there since the very beginning. Family was his idea. So he knows how family is intended to work. <clears throat> which then brings us to the other question, which is, what do we mean by family? And of course, there's the obvious. Dictionary.com says, a basic social unit consisting of parents and their children considered as a group, whether dwelling together or not, the traditional family. But then Jesus tells us things that uh, are challenging. Matthew 12, 48, he says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus gives us this clear sense that his family are those that are part of the family of God. That's who Jesus' family is. And I don't want you to take that lightly. 
I mean, if you're here and you're single and you're going, why do I have to sit and listen to four weeks of family? Because you're part of the family of God. If you're a prime timer and you're here and you're going, I did all of that. I don't need to sit through four more weeks of learning about the family. Why do I need to sit through? Because you're part of the family of God. We need you. You know, when you hear that, I mean, like that may sound really cool and, oh, that's really good. But when you think about what it means in reality, some of these things that Jesus tells us about family, they're hard. Because there's at least three things that God may call you to do with your family. One, he may call us to leave our family. Mark 10, 28, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. So in other words, Peter's saying, you know, Lord, I, we, we left everything for you. And he's like, yeah, good for you. Like he doesn't say, oh, I'm so sorry. And, you know, I'll try not to do that again. He's like, yeah, exactly. You know, I think of the heirs. I think of all of our missionaries, but I think of the heirs. You know, recently we've been praying for them because they've had some health issues. You know, when my grandson Justice got sick, we jumped in a car and an hour and a half later, we were there with Elise supporting her and the family. When the heirs got sick, their family was clear across the ocean. So literally, they've lived out, they've left their family for the gospel. But here's the thing, I mean, if you were to talk to the heirs, I guarantee you they wouldn't be sitting there going, oh gosh, it's so, woe is me, we had to leave our family for this. No, they'd be talking about the sweetness of God. How he's made his presence known in ways they've never felt before. But it doesn't change the fact that we may be called to do some hard things like leave our family. I had the chance to go to Reg's, uh, his presentation of, of his, he's working on a doctorate and I don't even know all the terms anymore, but his thesis and it was awesome. Where's Reg? Stand up. Let's give Reg a hand. I, because I, I'm just telling you, I mean, I'm just so glad there's people like Reg that are willing to, I mean, he's put a ton of work and research into, and his, and his dissertation is on church planting. And so as, as a church, Lake City, we've, we've looked to the future and we recognize that church planting very well may be in our future. And so Reg has done an incredible work in looking at and, and dissecting it and trying to understand it so that if we as a church decide to go to that route, I mean, it's amazing what the work that he's done. I'm so grateful for that. But one of the things that struck me as he was talking about that is that if we go down that road as a church, there's a good chance that we are going to be asked as a church family to leave our church family because some of you may be asked to leave to go plant a church for the gospel. And it's going to be painful because you love your church family. You love your friends. You come here. You see each other each week. You do life together. And you very well may be asked by God to leave your family. The other thing that God may call us to do is to see our family as our enemy. Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. 
that a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So here Jesus is making the clear point that our love for him must be greater than our love for our family. But whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And then the third thing that he may call us to do is to hate or renounce our family. Luke 14, 25, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That word translated hate comes from a word sane, which is the same word that's translated when it talks about Jacob hating Esau and Jacob hating Leah. So we get the clear idea that it's a sense of hating, in other words, loving far less than, you know, Jacob really loved Rachel, not so much Leah. And so the Bible says he hated Leah. And so we get this great sense that our love for Jesus must be greater than our love for even our family, which if you know me, that's a huge statement for me to make because I love my family. But it's what Jesus is telling us about our family. So you might be thinking, so Pastor Dave, then what you're saying is what? The traditional family is irrelevant? And of course not. You can't read Ephesians 5 and 6 and see all that Paul says to husbands and wives and to moms and dads and children and their parents. But what I am saying to you is the family of God is the primary and eternal family because you and I, we're going to spend eternity together. Of course, what we want is we want our earthly family to also be part of our family of God, right? That's, that's the best of both worlds, that we would spend not only this life, but eternity together with our family. But it doesn't change the fact that the family of God is the primary and eternal family. So when we talk about the traditional family, I know that that has gotten complicated. The modern family has made it so that it's, it's a complicated conversation. I know that we as the church are called, to, we've got to love all people, and we've got to figure out how to speak into this. But what I'm telling you this morning is that the Bible is not confused. God is not confused. And he clearly makes the case for how families are to operate and, and how he's designed the family. He talks about the importance of mom and dad, and all around us we see the reality of what happens when we fail to understand what it is that God has called us into when it comes to this conversation of family. And I want to make a couple of disclaimers, because I know that when I'm talking to a group that there's some in here that are, have already gone through the heartbreak of divorce. I know there's some here that are single parents, blended families, foster families, adopted families. I know we have, a, we have the entire mix in our church. And so hear me on this. God is the God of another chance. God redeems. So this isn't about pointing fingers or passing judgment. But do you want the truth or do you want me to lie to you? Not sure? See, virtually every measurable statistic 
will tell you that children raised by mom and dad do better. According to fatherless gener the fatherless generation, if they're fatherless, 63% of the youth suicides, five times the average. 90% of homeless, 32 times the average. 85% of all children with behavior disorders, 20 times the average. If there's an involved father, 40% less likely to repeat a grade in school. 70% less likely to drop out. 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes, 10 times the average. Now, not often does it happen, but sometimes it's motherless homes and the effect of the on the children can be just as devastating. Again, and you need to hear this, if you are in one of those situations that I talked about earlier, God's bigger than statistics, okay? This is not an issue of if you find yourself in one of those situations that you're, you, you can't get through this because, yes, you can. With God, you can get through this, and we're here to help and support you and encourage you in that. But what I am saying is that God's not confused. Family was his idea, and discipleship is intended to first and foremost come through the family. But if discipleship is intended to come through the family, then what would Jesus say that he wants us to teach? And I think you go back to Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And certainly we resonate with that here at Lake City, right? Because, I mean, that's our mission statement. Love God, love others, and love the world. When it comes to teaching our kids, we say the most important thing we can teach our kids is to love God and love others. And, of course, Jesus gets this from Deuteronomy 6, where it says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. This is Moses talking. That you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess. And then verse 4 it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So that's what we are to teach our kids. Love God, love others. So then who and when is this teaching to take place? And if you keep reading in Deuteronomy, verse 7, it says, You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Lake City, this is important. When Moses is talking to Israel... He is talking to all of Israel, right? He didn't call, he didn't say, moms and dads, gather around, I have a message for you. So if he were here talking to Lake City, he wouldn't say, Lake City, I need to talk to the moms and dads. He would be talking to all of Lake City. He would be telling all of us that when we sit in our house, we need to be talking about God. We need to be talking about those things that are most important. And I know I'm talking to myself more than any of you. I have to find opportunities to talk about things more than just the Seahawks. 
And then it says, when you walk by the way. I never understood this uh, quite as clearly as I did after I went to Ethiopia to meet our new kids. Because in Ethiopia, when you go there, the streets are filled with people walking. In fact, when people come from Ethiopia and visit, that's one of the first things they say is like, where is everybody? Because we're all in our cars driving around. So maybe we don't walk by the way, but think of that as we drive by the way. So when we're in the car taking our kids to school or to an event, or if we're just taking a friend for a ride, that we would find opportunities to talk about things that are important. How's your heart? How are things going with your walk with the Lord? How's your quiet time? And then when you lie down, one of the interesting dynamics I've seen is that, you know, parents, when their kids are really little, we're pretty good about tucking them in at night and praying over them. And then they become teenagers. And we stop doing it. So here's a question. Do you think your kids need more or less prayer when they become teenagers? And I know, I mean, because parents will tell me, yeah, but they don't like it. Like, they, like get out. I don't like, you know, they, it's awkward. So what? Here's what I mean. I mean, they eventually go to sleep. There were many nights I spent standing over my kids' bed praying for them. They don't have to know. Just stay up a little later than them or get up before them. Actually, that's much easier. And then when you rise up, I mean, a great argument for morning devotions, not that I'm telling you you need to do morning devotions, but rise up and talk about things that matter. You've heard me use the statistic, but I think we would all agree that we should be opening up God's word as a family. The truth is less than 10% of born-again Christian families actually open up God's word together and read it as a family. So when you rise up, a great time, open up God's word and read together as a family but they think it's boring. They think it's, so what? It's okay. Find ways to make it interesting, but trust God to deal with the reality of it, but our job is to be faithful. But when you think of sit, walk, lie, rise, when does that happen most often? And who has the most opportunity to do that? And it's parents with our kids, and that's why at Lake City, we believe parents are the first and best disciples of their own children because you have the most opportunity with your kids to do that. We are a family equipping church because we believe our job is to resource you, to encourage you, to, to pray for you, to support you, to partner with you, but we can't do it for you. And that's why we've provided resources. That's why we've put together the legacy path. We've been talking about it, but the, the legacy path is made up of eight milestones that our kids go through. And, and what it looks like for us is we are training our kids and discipling our kids through those eight milestones. And the first one is already up on the website and all eight of them will be up before the family series is done. So I invite you, take a look at that. We also run these occasional campaigns. That's why we did the prayer campaign 
to help encourage and support families as they pray for each other and pray with each other. We did that one on technology. We've got a couple more that we're going to be doing later this year. It's for all of us, but it's also for our families to help encourage and support our families. And then, of course, we have the Faith at Home Center. You go down to the bottom of the stairs, that little looks like a home off to the right. It's called the Faith at Home Center, and it's for all of us, but it's especially for families. It's our way of supporting and encouraging our families. We have resources down there for the family, for everyone, but also for the family. We have pointer files that, depending on what stage in life you are, your kids are, things that you're going through, there's a pointer file for you that talks about that and then points you to some resources that are available. So I would encourage you to come and check that out. But I think when it comes to what are we to teach our kids, I think there's more. In Luke, after he tells this parable, he has a, tells the parable of the great banquet where he's, he's, he has a banquet and nobody's coming because everybody's too busy. He sends his servant out to the highways and the byways and says, you know, get people to come so that my house will be full. Well, right after he tells that parable is when that verse that we read earlier is about that we have to hate our father and our mother. And then if you continue in Luke 14 and verse 27, it says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Mark 8, 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to him, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And then Luke 9, 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Do you hear a pattern? See, a lot of people want to follow Jesus. But Jesus says, first you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and then follow me. So when you see that, deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me, I mean, what does it even mean to deny yourself? What does that look like? I know often we think in terms of, you know, denying ourselves of some things, and there's certainly a sense of that, but I think in a bigger sense it's saying I need to deny myself completely. In other words, I need to die to myself. And honestly, family is one of the great places where we get to practice that. I think about my own marriage with Kelly. As I had to learn what it looked like to deny myself, to die to myself. Because I'm selfish. There are lots of things that I want to do, and I want to be able to do them. But as I learned what it looked like to deny myself, to die to myself, guess what? You know the message I was sending to Kelly? Was, you're enough for me. And so, in a way, I get to practice the very thing that God is asking of me. Because as I deny myself, as I, as I die to myself in this life, what I'm saying to God, what I'm saying to Jesus is, you're enough for me. As I am more and more willing to die to myself, I'm saying to Jesus, you're enough for me. And then when we pick up our cross, again, I think oftentimes we think in terms of, you know, my cross is this and your cross is that. And I, again, there's certainly a sense of that. But I think in a bigger sense, it's this idea of picking up a new cross for Jesus. 
In other words, it's that whole, uh, you know, the old is gone and the new has come. I've denied myself. I've died to myself. And I'm now a new creature, a new creation in Christ. And now I'm following Jesus. So we're to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus. And then one last thing I would say about all of this is this. When you look at those verses, Mark 10, where he says to leave our family, Mark, Matthew 10, where he says, I didn't come to bring peace. Luke 14, where he says to hate our family. I mean, you have to ask yourself, why would Jesus use that kind of language? I mean, Mark 10, right before he tells us about, talks about leaving our family, he had just reminded the rich young ruler to honor your father and mother. In Matthew 10, he says, didn't come to bring peace. Of course he came to bring peace. Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers. In John 14, he said, peace I leave with you. John 16, he said that in me you may have peace. And then clearly, when it comes to saying hate our family, Jesus said, love one another. And certainly that one another includes those within the context and the confines of our home. So why would Jesus use language like that when it comes to talking about family? And I believe it's because Jesus is calling us to something different, something bigger. Some call it radical discipleship. I'm just saying, I believe just God is calling us. Jesus is calling us to something different. When you look at Luke, that verses that we've been reading in Luke, after he tells us that we must bear our cross and come after him, Here's what he says, beginning in verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So each of us needs to count the cost. There is a cost to following Jesus. If you want to do this new thing that God is calling you to, there's a cost to it. Whether you're single, married, kids, no kids, it matters not. There is a cost to following Jesus. And when I think of the cross, of all people, the disciples understood the cost of following Jesus. I mean, I wonder, we're a week out from the resurrection. When the, when the disciples looked at a cross, I mean, what were they thinking? A month later, a year later, as they looked at the cross... What do you think they were thinking? They could have been looking at that and thinking, I very well may end up on a cross. And some of them did. But they understood the cost of following Jesus. And so next steps, I just have one, just one question. I want you to consider, and that is, what is God asking of you right now? What is God asking of you right now? See, for some of you, God has been nudging you and prodding you, and you've been like, no, anything but that. And some of you haven't really thought much about that, and others of you, I think, have wrestled with this uh, already. And, but wherever you are, I just that's my question for you today. What is God asking of you right now because there is a cost to following Jesus which of course brings the question then why should we follow him I mean wow 
this wasn't like the happiest of sermons. Why should we follow Jesus? And of course, there's tons of reasons to follow Jesus. There were three that stood out for me when I considered this message. The first one is simply because he's God. Like if the resurrection tells us nothing else, it tells us that he's God Almighty, the creator of the universe, and he's worthy to be followed. The second is because of the promise of eternity. I can't wait to be running the streets of gold with all of you. And then finally, because there is such a peace and hope in knowing Jesus. Something that's unexplainable. It's really hard to put your finger on. But there is a peace and a hope that comes from putting your trust, putting your life in the hands of the one that died on the cross for you and I. So I'm going to close this with prayer and I'll end the prayer with just a couple of words that Jesus has for us. So will you pray with me? Father God, we love you. And uh, Jesus, we are so grateful for what you did for us, that you went to the cross on our behalf, that you died, that you rose again, so that we might live forever with you in eternity. We're so grateful for that. And we're grateful for family. We're grateful, God, that you are for us in our families. Lord, I pray your blessing on each family that's represented here. I pray, God, that, that each of us would leave here today more committed to you, more committed to our families than ever before. I'm just grateful, God, for you. In John 10, verse 9, it says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then in John 14, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Amen.